Okay, so where we left off was this uh, one version of the story, which kind of started with um, this man um, having this experience, and then later with um, some intervention of some deities. So now I would um, like to encourage some um, discussion. So can you... One, two, three, four. Can we count off by four? And then um, I'll give uh, some instructions once we're in smaller groups of how um, we can um, talk about this. So maybe we'll start with you. One, then... two, three, one, two, three. Okay. <coughs> four. Four. Here, okay. One, two, three. And Tony, do you want to? Four. four. Great. Okay, so we'll have the ones over here, the twos over there. Or maybe the twos can go in the uh, out in the social hall, and maybe we'll have the threes in the conference room and the fours over here. So one over here. But before you go, I'll tell you what you, um, you're going to discuss because because <laughs> maybe I guess you can hear me out. They'll be fine. Okay, so for groups one and three, I'd like you to um, discuss what are the advantages of telling a story completely in human terms, completely in normal uh, human experience. What are the advantages of doing that? And what are the disadvantages of doing that, including, of not including any super normal elements or uh, deities? That's groups one and three. Groups two and four, what are the advantages of including lots of supernormal events or deities into a story? And what are the disadvantages for including supernormal uh, events or deities? So groups one and three are focusing on humanistic, and groups uh, two and four are focusing on deities supernormal. And then you can have a discussion. And we, um, it can be in whichever way that feels comfortable, but with an, um, an eye towards not one person dominating the conversation, I don't think any of you will, but just an eye that all of us have things to contribute and things to share and um, go forth and um, have a conversation. And we'll probably take maybe 10, 15 minutes for this, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Thank you. Okay, welcome back. So let's start with um, kind of this, the human aspect of the stories. What are some of the advantages or disadvantages to sticking to just uh, human, uh, normal, what we might say, um, experiences? And you don't have to have been in one of those groups to um, say, but uh, what, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages to being... Just plausible, dare I say that word. You can say disadvantages or advantages. And you don't have to have been in one of those, group one or three. I think our microphones are... If it comes from human experiences, we can relate it to our experiences as realistic as opposed to gods that are um, super normal and we can't relate our lives to being like that. But with a human story, we can also aspire to living our lives more like the person in the story. Yeah, so the, maybe the hero of the story can more be an exemplar for us or something, yes. We talked about a lot of different things. Um, we also said that, and so then as we started approaching, though, 
I'm going to question the question a little bit. Okay. As we started approaching um, <clears throat> the disadvantages, you know, the obvious the surface level one that came to mind was, well, <clears throat> there wouldn't be as much sort of stretch, you know, something inspiring or something um, to expand toward. And so then we started saying, well, but could you have inspiration and stretching but still within the human realm? And so it felt like there were different levels. You know, do we really need something supernatural to feel inspired or can there be? Or could one's, this all depends on one's definition of the human realm. Some people believe certain things are well within the human realm. Others have a very, much more limited view either for, for various reasons and maybe breaking out of these limitations is part of our process. So... It wasn't exactly clear where the boundary was um, between these two different realms. Excellent. Because, right, maybe that's part of it, even asking this question, is we start to wonder, well, where is this boundary? And we start to have conversations of what, what are humans capable of doing or not doing or something. Yeah, thank you, Kim. Tony, can I tell you that it feels a little bit loud for me that there's an echo that's, just a tiny bit. There we go. That's better. Is that okay? Can you guys still hear me? Oh, okay. I'll add one more um, thing, which is that if if a person, and this was just my own view, not from the whole group, um, the Buddha was inspired to go out on his quest, as the story goes, um, because he was dissatisfied with the human realm. He had everything that everybody thinks they're wishing for, more money, better health, good relationship, blah, 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 everything, whatever it was, the idea is that he had it, and that was still unsatisfying. So I would think that a person who was genuinely motivated by this same sense of dukkha is not going to be satisfied by a story in the human realm only. Oh. There has to. There's this part of us that knows there's something different Hmm. so just like he wanted a different life than the palace life he wanted a different life than just the human life is that kind of what you're saying there's a root cause to why we do these things and why and the story has to speak to that whatever the person calls that Hmm. nice thank you kim So I don't know if it's okay to drive, drive inspiration for what I say next from what the person just before me said, but, but I'll uh, take a chance. As, as far as the root cause of why we're motivated to uh, let go of worldly life and to uh, live a life of the Dharma, uh, I go back and forth. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. Is it just biology, genetics, how we're built? Or is there a, a spiritual dimension out there that if we can only become attuned to it, we start to want to gravitate toward? <laughs> uh, I'm sure I'll never know the answer to this in my lifetime, um, but it's nice to uh, think about, keep in mind the possibility but I don't know. And can I ask you, Bill? Yes. Can you imagine that um, other people may have these questions too? Like, I'm sure they do. Yeah. Do you think that uh, maybe a lot of people? This question of, is there more? You know, I haven't taken a poll. I don't know of anyone who has, so I don't know what the percentage would be. A lot in sheer numbers, yes, a low percentage or a large percentage? I'd be interested in knowing, but I don't. Yeah, so what I was pointing to, or tries to point to, is I think this is a human, part of what it means to be human, is to kind of wonder, in different ways, is there something more than just this, what I'm experiencing? Because if there isn't, we start to fall into a blue funk, like Albert Camus did. Uh, You know, you know, what's the point of all this? Why go on? 
Yes. We, we want there to be meaning and purpose in our lives. Yes. Something beyond what we just make up in our own minds, like something out there. Yes. <laughs> I think we want that, some of us. Yeah. So um, maybe, Beverly, do you want to add on this, and then, and then I'll comment. I always do. I'm sorry, but just along along the lines, and I don't want to speak for Kim, but in my growing understanding, and to add to what I thought she was saying, uh, it's a lot of teachers in, in Buddhism here today, and they they talk about impermanence and aging and illness and and death, and the, the reasons that that do you, you relate in the story why the du- Buddha went out, and you get the impression they stop there and they say, well. What this all is for you is to realize that everything is impermanent. You're going to die and to get used to that. But it seems to me in, my, in the class and in studying that it was not that it was that, that he thought that that was not satisfactory either. And he went out to look for the deathless to what um, conquers that. And sometimes I think a lot of teachers stop short. It's like, you know, if you ask, they'll say, well, that's kind of a religious idea. And we don't really do religion here. It scares people. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so just to say, I mean, I think there is it's just this idea that there is something else, that there's something um, more satisfying, that it's to transcend these things, not just to get used to our life as, as it is. Whether that's human realm or not, I don't know. But. Great. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I'm debating whether I'll share this now or after we talked about the supernatural. So maybe we'll have... Uh, We'll finish talking about the human, and then I'll um, weigh in on this. I think, Wendy, you wanted to say something? Um, It just occurred to me that um, I I prefer um, it to be more, um, the stories to be more realistic, Um, with without the angels and and um, but because it's not, then it's speaking to the stories speak to everyone, and I think that's a really good thing because there are the stories that are more a little realistic. There are the stories with the that are more creative and uh, and so. I think it's uh, a good thing that that the suttas can speak to all. Mm. Thank you, Wendy. It's nice, right? When I was, I was listening to the conversation, it occurred to me that the notion that there's something missing, that there's a lack, that we need something more, want something more, look for something, isn't that an essential element of dukkha? Hmm. That need for something, the sense that there's something missing, the sense that, that, that there's a lack, and that we go looking for something, and we, we do that out of the kind of. Yeah, dukkha, right? <laughs> Thank you, Tony. It's a little bit of dukkha. Does anybody else want to comment on the advantage or disadvantage of kind of t- keeping our stories in the very human, ordinary realm before we move on to... Okay, so what about the superhuman? What are the advantages of including things that are not ordinary experiences? And what are the disadvantages of including devas and deities and we don't have any miracles in this story but this is already touched on but my main thought for advantages of including devas or other you know spirit beings in the stories is that it promotes an aspirational quality a nudge to stretch your idea of what's possible, of what human potential is, and also maybe just kind of an openness to mystery that there could be some things going on that you don't quite understand, and this is a story, a frame for some of that unknown out there. Hmm. 
Nice, thank you. Kind of a reminder of there is a mystery or, or to point towards a mystery, things that we don't know. When I first started thinking about this, I, I recognized that since the scientific res- revolution, certainly our thinking today is much more bifurcated in terms of metaphysical and empirical realities than I think things were at the time of the Buddha and most of the centuries ever since. Um, There is certainly a benefit, I think, to having, if I just use the word metaphysical, aspect to a story. It it adds not so much a a mystery, although that's true too, but uh, an importance, I think, for most people. Um, If if they buy it, then this is something that is more significant because it it involves another realm. Um, I was thinking, too, of the question we talked about just a few moments ago, and that is um, sort of having this general sense of mystery. I think the general sense of mystery about life is, I have no idea, of course, what the world population attitude toward this is, but uh, I think um, religions like Christianity and so on, if you're especially, if you're in the fundamentalist aspect of that, as I was raised, uh, that has so many answers to so much of everything that, and, and I think that's probably true in Mohammedism and other religions too on their more conservative sides there's an answer to everything and that really taps down I think any general interest that might be there in the mystery of of life and what is this all about because there's answers and you're mm-hmm. raised with them mm-hmm. and I know many people that just stayed in that fundamentalist view and have gone on all of their life that way and they've, they've got no questions at all about this sort of thing Thank you, Mick. I think that there can be some comfort and some safety, sense of safety if you know. Like if it's, there aren't these big questions you have to worry about. And I also want to um, draw out something that you said, Mick, which I think is really wonderful, is that we have this idea, metaphysical, empirical. And where we're drawing the line, it's fuzzy, but we don't know that it's not in the same place as they had in ancient India. For example, maybe for them, dreams that they had were just as important as their real events, for example, right? Because they didn't have the story of the unconscious like we do now, or pre-conscious or subconscious. We don't, they didn't have that necessarily then. So maybe that's example. Or maybe they, people had experiences while they were in deep meditative states. Or maybe they could do yogic uh, sleep what, I forgot, yogic dreaming, I don't know where, or lucid dreaming, that's what it's called. You know, maybe they were adepts in that and had experiences that maybe we don't have, and they, because they experienced them, were thinking that they're just as authentic, authoritative as we, or they probably thought as their ordinary walking, talking experience. So thank you. There is, right, where we are drawing the line may not be the same place where they were drawing the line. Anybody else want to add something about uh, supernatural? Yeah, when I heard those two, um, I kind of hoped that I would get into the supernatural group. <laughs> Sorry, <Jim. laughs> I was going to ask if anybody wanted to swap. <laughs> because I realized that, I, you know, this, I don't know if it's supernatural, but so I, I was raised on reading comic books. And, you know, I watched all of the Superman series and things like that. So, you know, the idea that there was, I really liked and was drawn to the idea that there were ways to have powers that might get me out of at least some of the problems that I had. I mean, Superman still had to worry about kryptonite and dealing with Lois. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That Lois person. But isn't actually? I just want to pause here. Isn't that great that many of us laughed and we knew what he was talking about, right? This is like stories that we've kind of many of us know, right? And they have some non-normal things in them. Yeah, and I was thinking. I watch a television show called The Big Bang Theory. 
There's all these really super bright people from Caltech, and one of their favorite spots is the comic book store, you know, with all of these things about superheroes. Um, but actually what I just came to now is if I was trying to think of how, where, where would you put the Dalai Lama? Is he strictly human or does he also have some elements of, you know, he has a story about having been reborn many times and this purification. So to me, he's, he's maybe sitting in that zone between what I consider purely human with all of its being dominated by the um, reptilian part of the brain and some other possibility. Maybe it's just the much more developed neocortex or you know, maybe something even beyond neuroscience. So I kind of, I don't know, I just, he just came to my mind as where would we see an interface between these two seemingly disparate realms? Yeah, and this question about the Dalai Lama, I think part of it um, could be, I don't think you can ask it just generally, who is he or what is he? I think it's more helpful or useful to ask, well, what do the... the uh, people of Tibet, the Tibetans in exile who are devoted to him, what do they think? And what do uh, us here in the contemporary West, what do we think? Here in kind of Theravada insight movement, what do we think? What do we think? What do Westerners who are followers of that type of uh, Buddhism, what do they think? And I bet that it's not the same, right? And we could ask him, what does he think himself, right? We'll probably get four different answers if we ask those four different communities, about you know, was it? Is he just having? Is he just some ordinary guy put in extraordinary circumstances, or is he really an extraordinary guy? Does anybody else want to um, add to this? Just thinking about the disadvantages of those kinds of notions, and I mean, of course talking about those things, the Buddha said it's, it's inspiring, and that's why he taught about rebirth, not because it was true, but because it was inspiring. But the downside, it seems to me, is that it creates conditions for spiritual hierarchy. I remember sitting with a senior nun, Asian nun, who looked around the room and said, the devas have come to listen to this Dharma talk. There's a claim to access to those realms that is made, that's a special claim. And it creates the possibility for, for hierarchy. Mm. And that that is a, uh, and, and, and when you buy into the hierarchy, then of course, unless you can attain whatever the person is claiming, one is always left empty. Hmm. That's very interesting, Tony. I liked that you were used hierarchy because some people may say, oh, she has access to devas. That must give her prestige or status. And some people think, oh, she has access to the devas. Maybe she forgot her medication. And uh, <laughs> Right? <laughs> so it does, you know, confer, maybe it says something about that individual. So Joseph Campbell is somebody uh, many of you probably know who has studied kind of myths. And um, I remember when this um, series of documentaries came out, I think it was in the 1980s, and it, um, I just loved it. I thought it was kind of really opened up my eyes. And Joseph Campbell entered this idea of archetypes. But something that he said in particular um, I now think about, it's, I find um, provocative, and I'll just share this. He said that part of the, um, the function, the role of myths, and we're using this word myths to be um, a story that's often in the far distant past, 
so that nobody actually remembers the events. It's in a far distant past. And they try to give meaning to lives or tries to give meaning to the way things are. Why is the universe this way? Why are humans this way? And it also kind of um, often tries to locate individuals in a time and place. Like we are here now and the myth was there then. It kind of helps uh, maybe get some of the, our bearings of where we fit in this world. But what he said that I thought was provocative is he said one of the functions, another function of myths is to provide a sense of awe. To kind of open us up to this idea that there's something bigger. And then that humans through time have created cosmologies, religions to maintain this sense of awe. So he is kind of saying it's that wanting to feel that there's something bigger is what's of primary importance and the what we create as humans in communities to uh, support that. So I just offer that as something to think about is that here is a contemporary Westerner who is um, pointing to the importance of wanting to feel like there's something bigger. Or have a sense of awe. I don't actually know. Uh, what is that? What is a sense of awe? Maybe it could also be, oh, that's possible. That could be just the human version of it. Or maybe it could be, um, oh, this, there's more than meets the eye. There's more than I know about. Maybe that could be the sense of awe. I think all of us can interpret it for ourselves. What does that mean? What, what is... What is awe-inspiring for us? So does anybody else have any kind of uh, general comments about this topic where we are so far? So I've always been resistant to the supernatural stuff. Uh, oh yeah, maybe it's true, but how can we possibly know? And people believe thousands of different things. How do we know which one's true? If any of them, probably none. So I, I don't like to go there usually. Uh, and yet, I also I, I so I'm I'm science based, and I love reading science. But if you read science and, start, and think about how did the universe get started and where did it come from? It's quite perplexing, and I, and I've, I think the only thing that makes would make sense is would be if there was nothing. Hmm. But here we are. <laughs> so, so something doesn't make sense about this whole existence. Is it an infinite regress into a past, or did we have a? Did the universe emerge as a cause, as an event without a cause? Neither of these my, I, can I wrap my mind around. So there's something strange going on out there. Maybe the benefit of these metaphysical-based stories is to um, start to stretch me a little bit, open my mind up to possibilities. Of, I don't know what's going on out there, but maybe there's something I can't understand, and just, just to be more open. I think that's good. Anytime we're stretched, right? Anytime we're stretched is a good thing. And maybe I'll add a little tidbit here, which um, often the scholars will say about the story of Brahma coming down and beseeching the Buddha to teach. They'll say generally that's not in the uh, the earliest strata. It's a little bit later. It's it's found in the earliest strata of the suttas, but um, the, the scholars can are trying to they're starting to like tease apart what passages within a sutta are earlier and later, and they're not always able to do this. And, of course, a lot of scholars have a bias. Many of them are uh, university professors, and they want to say that all the supernatural things are late and all the human things are early. I don't know. That may be true. But we're less interested here in exactly what's true because we don't know. But I will say this, that we can imagine that this part that's put in about Brahma coming down, Brahma is the 
highest deity for Brahmins and to have the highest deity of the competing religion, alternative religion, other religion, be part of the story where he's asking the Buddha to teach the Dharma. That's a way for Buddhism to kind of embrace what's happening in the culture and to kind of subordinate uh, the other deities, the other the gods and that's um, and the competing religion. I'm using this word competing. Yeah, it may it may have been competing. So it was a way of we could think of it as um, type of propaganda, the type of way to increase people who were um, followers of uh, Brahma. Say, oh well, if this Brahma person comes down and is asking for the Buddha to teach, then the Buddha must be more powerful, must have more prestige, more status than the Bra- than Brahma. So we can imagine, I don't know if it's true, we can imagine that that's part of the reason why that story was um, inserted in there. Okay, are we ready for another story? <laughs> This is about the birth of the Buddha. So maybe I'll do this little preface here. So I'm going to call the mother Queen Maya. But actually, everybody, all scholars are, I think, are agreed that um, Gotama, he didn't come from a royal family. This is what we like to think, and this is what we say that he was the prince and his father was a king. Instead, at that time in ancient India, there were generally two governmental systems. There were monarchies, had the usual king and queen and children, you know, like like we would think. They would have um, the number one person was a king and the number two person was a Brahmin priest and their uh, governmental system. And then we have over here the republics. And the republics were, we don't know exactly how they were governed, but it wasn't an individual as a leader. It was more a collective of people who were the leaders. And we can imagine that it was probably, you know, maybe families that, or, you know, all the men from a family were the leaders is how we were, could understand it. And then um, in the time of the Buddha, what was happening is that the kings and the monarch and the kingdoms were starting to um, take over the republics. So there are a lot of wars that are happening in kind of in these, uh, this general time of uh, Buddhism, so much so that when the um, Greeks arrived hundreds of years after uh, the Buddha, when they arrived into India... The, they found almost only kingdoms, not republics and kingdoms. So the, the republics eventually got um, conquered, I guess is the word we can use. And so the Buddha, Gautama, he comes from the Shakya clan, and the Shakyans were part of a republic. So he's probably, there's some truth in that he was probably, his family was one of the ruling families, that had some type of authority, maybe like uh, I don't, I don't know. Nobody really knows, but it's a little bit different than a king and a queen and a prince. But right, we still we use this uh, language, and I think maybe here in the West we like it because maybe it makes sense to us. We and we know what a king is. We know what a prince is. <coughs> so in this story, I'm going to call her Queen Maya, the, the mother, the mother of the Buddha. So one night, Queen Maya has a dream. She dreamed that a white elephant descended from heaven and entered her womb. She was quite perplexed about this. And in the morning, she asked some of the religious leaders, what can this mean that I had this powerful dream? And they told her that she must have conceived a child who was pure and powerful. And sure enough, she became pregnant and her belly starts to grow. And their kingdom was in Kapalavatu. And it was the tradition at that time that the woman would give birth and where in her hometown 
but she was living at her husband's family. So Queen Maya, when it was time for her to give birth, was traveling to her hometown. She had a she was on a pelican where people were carrying her. And on the way, they passed through Lumbini, which had this beautiful forest. And there's all these flowers that were uh, blossoming, blooming, and petals were falling to the ground. And she asked them, stop, I, I, I want to spend a little time in this grove with these beautiful trees and flowers. So they let her off of the pelican and I think that's I'm, I think that's the word and um, she walks over to a tree and she reaches up and touches a branch and with her hand up she gives birth to the Buddha out through her side and then two streams of water one warm and one cool came from the heavens and bathed the newborn infant and Queen Maya even though the infant was born completely unsullied without any blood after these streams of water came down and bathed them this newborn infant stood firmly with his feet on the ground and he took seven steps to the north. And they were holding a white sunshade over him, and he turned and looked at the four quarters of what he could see, and then he uttered these words, I am the highest in the world. I am the best in the world. I am the foremost in the world. This is my last birth. There is no more renewal of being in future lives. Then Queen Maya and her infant son went back to the palace in Kapilavatu. And seven days later, Queen Maya died. So this newborn infant, Gotama, he was raised by his mother's sister, his aunt, who also was a wife of, they had they shared the same husband. They had the same husband. So the king, King Suddhodana, invited Brahmin scholars to read the future, to be prognosticators. And all of them gave the same prediction, that this newborn infant would either become a world-conquering monarch, a great king, or a great spiritual leader. And the great king, if he chose that, would have seven treasures. Like all great kings do. This is part of their um, understanding of the world. So there... So these seven treasures are a wheel, an elephant a horse, a jewel, a woman, a householder, and a counselor. So if um, Gotama chose to become a world monarch, he would, like all world monarchs, have these seven treasures. But of course, King Suddhodana didn't want um, his son to um, become a spiritual leader. He wanted him to become a Chakravartin, a a world-conquering monarch. So he created all the he um, put in the palaces all things for sensual pleasures for the for uh, Gotama so that he would not be tempted to leave the palace including three palaces one for the winter one for the summer one for the rains one day when um, the prince Gotama was 29 years old he had little experience of the outside world and he was overcome with curiosity. So he asked a charioteer to take him on a series of rides through the countryside. And on these journeys, he was shocked, for he saw the sight of an aged man, then a sick man, and then a corpse. 
And he asked his charioteer, who are these people? Actually, he asked it when he first saw the old man, what is wrong with that man who is stooped over? Oh, he is aged. He's old. Will that happen to me? Yes. Then they see a, a sick person. What is wrong with that person? Oh, he is sick. Will that happen to me? Yes. And they see a corpse. The person is dead. Will that happen to me? Yes. So the stark realities of old age, disease, and death seized the prince and sickened him. He was quite upset. And then he saw a wandering ascetic. And the charioteer explained that the ascetic was one who had renounced the world and sought release from the fear of death, old age, and sickness. And so this seed of the idea of renunciation was born in Prince Siddhartha. And with that, he and his charioteer went back to the palace. And I'll end this part of the story there. So earlier I talked about how um, there's narrative and there's systematic teaching. Do you think that uh, there are some systematic teach what I, what I mean by systematic, like four noble truths, eightfold path, some of the things that are you know have numbers and are lists and what are what do you think are some of the systematic teachings in that version that I just gave of the heaven messengers? It doesn't have to be a numbered one, but uh, Go ahead, Phil. Well, there is a teaching in that, a, a thought-through, narrative teaching. Uh, you know, this, this too will happen to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all subject. Um, we maybe go through life without thinking about it much, but uh, that's the reality. And, and then the Buddha ended up thinking, this is important. Absolutely, right? I mean, we're not, uh, we're not immune from that. Yeah, maybe part of the story is, is how we... Uh, maybe the Buddha's father protecting him from all this is a metaphor for how we prefer not to think about it ourselves, I'm guessing. Sure, right, that we're all guess- uh, guessing, quote-unquote, right? We're all kind of interpreting on our own. Sure. Does anybody else want to add some things? As to the systematic part of the teaching, there were the three heavenly messengers, aging, sickness, and death. (laughs) Thank you. I thought you were going to say something more. But uh, But you you asked for what is the part that's a list or part of the systematic. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I was preparing for this uh, lecture, I was thinking, like, okay, I want to find the story, the... the, um, Three de- the departures. Mm, I can't remember where is that. I think it's in Manjaman twenty six. So I'm looking at Manjaman twenty six. Like, oh no, it's not there. Maybe it's in Manjaman thirty six. I don't know, but I'm looking at there. It's not in there, right? It's not in the earliest strata. Uh, the th- messengers, these three messengers. It's not for Gautama. It's not uh, in there. So maybe I'll just add. I think it's very interesting that. I'll say for me, and I think most Buddhist practitioners, that's a key thing that we all, we even say to each other sometimes when we're sick or somebody is ill, we sometimes say, oh, old age, sickness, and death. You know, as a reminder, like, there's no immunity from these. But that isn't actually in the earliest uh, teachings. But it's something as Westerners that we have really kind of held on. I've never heard a version of the story that doesn't include that. Yes, it comes from two places. So in um, Diga 14, Mahapadana Sutta, it is the story to, of another Buddha. 
a Buddha before Gautama. He's giving um, a story about Buddhas, and he's saying all Buddhas have these type of experiences, and it includes this, uh, the messengers. So it's um, in there. And it's also in the Nidanakata, which is a commentary to the Jataka tale. Yeah, I'll, I'll call it that. It's the introduction to the commentary on the Jataka tales, which is about 800 years after the time of the Buddha. So these two places, it's, for Gotama, it's much later, but for Buddhas in general, I don't know, one particular Buddha, it's um, there in the Diga, Nikaya. And Kim, has, can does somebody have a microphone? I don't recall the number, but there is a sutta in the Majjhima, which is the one that describes the horrors of the hell realms. Um, And King Yama asks the person who comes, didn't you notice that other people were sick? Didn't you notice that other people were getting old? And didn't you notice that other people were dying? And, And did you never think that that would happen to you? And the person says, no, I was negligent. I didn't realize. And so there is this, the three messengers are there, but it doesn't have anything to do with the Buddha being inspired because of them. So You're, I wonder if this idea was floating around the cultures, that these three things were important, or I'm not sure. Or that's a very late story. I don't know. I agree. I think it's great. In my memory, there's more than three messengers for Yama, but... Birth is also there. Okay. So there's four. Four. Okay. So, right. So there are an idea of messengers that we can see that will either prevent you from going to hell or that will prevent you or that will cause you to renounce and go forward. Right. But that's... That seeing something outside of ourselves, seeing somebody sick, seeing somebody, a dead person. And who here has not been changed or touched by either being very ill ourselves or somebody close to us being ill or somebody dying very close to us or even aging, right? Who hasn't been touched by that? When you're asking about systematic teaching, and I, I can't put this in the context of anything that I've maybe learned in a Buddhist context, but when you were talking about this Brahmin saying that either he was going to become a great king or become a great spiritual teacher, that, mm, I don't know, uh, tension between sort of the egotistical, self-centered uh, acquiring for becoming happy or, yeah, I'll just say happy versus the sort of non-egotistical, um, maybe more collective type teaching of renunciation. So that, I don't know if that was part of why that story was told, but that difference between um, acquisition and renunciation. And I'm not quite sure if that, I mean, I don't know that that's part of a list or anything, but I'd, I'd be curious as to how you see that. This is an excellent point, I think, right? It kind of lays out, oh, there's two different paths. We could maybe generalize this and say there's the path of the householder and then there's the path of the renunciant. It's which And which path is a person going to choose? That's, how, that's my understanding of it. I don't know if uh, somebody else wants to add to that. So maybe I'll um, add this. I made. A, uh, I talked about how a king, a world-conquering king, it's called a Chakravart, and this was a an ideal king in ancient India. It was described, and you know, would rule justly and would spread wealth around. It would be somebody that everybody would love to have as a king. Would have seven treasures. What else do we know as seven? 
seven factors of enlightenment. So there is this, uh, that these two different paths each have seven wonderful things in terms of the king and the lay life. It's an elephant and a horse and a person and a counselor, you know, kind of tangible things that are helpful in your life. And in terms for the, it's not explicitly stated, but this is an assumption I think that many of us make, I know a lot of people make, that also the seven factors of awakening are things that are helpful on the path of renunciation. And I sometimes forget what the seven factors are. They're mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These are all kind of human capabilities, uh, aspects of our human life, but that can be cultivated and developed as it can help us on our path to awakening. Okay, so when we come back um, after lunch, we'll talk about the departure. And I have a, um, a version of this story, I'll get to it in a minute, Mick, that is um, a little bit different than the usual one. And that in this version of the story, Yasodhara, it's the, the wife of the Buddha, she has a voice and she has something to say. And she also has a very uh, distinct path. She has a real role in the um, the Buddha's awakening and his um, enlightenment. So we'll explore that. It's from a tradition. I said that there, uh, in early Buddhism, there was uh, some schisms and there were some different schools. And what we follow is Theravada. Well, this is from the Mulasavastavada, which is was another uh, school. And we have a piece of their canon, and in their canon, they have a different story than what we have. And the wife of the Buddha has a real presence and a voice there. So we'll listen to that version of the story because I think it's, I love it actually. So, Are there any, and Mick, you had a question? Oh. <laughs> Before we break for lunch, is there any questions or? Okay. So it's 12.05 if we um, come back at one twenty, so an hour and 15 minutes, does that sound reasonable? Okay, so at one twenty. So thank you all. <laughs>